Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program with an infatuation about trains, planes and especially automobiles. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including transport for New South Wales to trial new tech to keep women safe travelling at night. Last week we noted that an American company is putting an electric engine in old Rolls-Royce Phantoms. This week I talked to Brian Crump. Now he's president of the Rolls-Royce Owners Club of Australia, the New South Wales branch, and he's a trustee of the Sir Henry Royce Foundation Australia. He calmly expresses his admiration for new technology, but also his desire to keep classic motoring for what it was. We have a segment on feedback, the comments and issues from our listeners, and another interview. Nearly every truck trailer operating in Australia is made here. Truck design is developing at a fast rate and now is well placed to adapt to the changing world where the freight industry is now seen as an essential service. We speak to the CEO of Heavy Vehicle Industry Australia, Todd Hacking. And we have some motoring minutes. Now, you can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, a great source of information for our feedback segment. But let's get this program going. First, the news. Researchers from the Smart Infrastructure Facility at the University of Wollongong are developing software that will allow existing closed-circuit television cameras to automatically identify and report suspicious or violent incidents. The project was one of four winners of Transport for New South Wales' Safety After Dark Innovative Challenge. The artificial intelligence system will detect incidents such as people fighting or a group of agitated persons, people following someone else, other abnormal behaviour, even people arguing. It can also identify an unsafe environment, such as a lack of lighting. The system will then alert a human operator who will assess and determine if it is a real dangerous situation, then call in resources as necessary. Not only can intervention be initiated, but if there is no danger, the information is still fed back to the program, which will become smarter, learning in a similar way to a human being. A fully electric vehicle can have staggering acceleration, but a hybrid is more about fuel economy than powerful performance. The Corolla hybrid has a combined power of 90 kilowatts, whereas the non-hybrid has 125 kilowatts, but the hybrid is rated at 3.5 litres per 100 kilometres. There is little difference in driving the Corolla hybrid, although it sounds, or doesn't sound, a bit different at slow speeds. The petrol engine does not initially start. It's only on battery for a short while, such as backing out of the driveway. Then with accelerating, there's an audible whir of the electric motor. The hybrid has a continually variable transmission, which can select any ratio within limits that is best for the situation. But when pushed, the combined engine and gearbox noise is a bit intrusive. The hybrid option costs an extra $1,500, but is not available on the top-of-the-line ZR. 
The first Honda HRV, its small SUV, was a square box with a chisel nose. It looked more like a pencil rubber. The latest model is far from that, more stylish and good room inside, including a very good luggage compartment. The Honda has strong angles and creases in its external design, especially at the front. It has a sloping roof and great-looking wheels. There's a clean but not ultra-modern dashboard interior, 7-inch infotainment screen, and Bluetooth connectivity was just a hassle. We drove the RS, which is their sporty model. It's just not sporty. 105 kilowatts. There's a Hyundai Kona small SUV with 130 kilowatts. Pottering around the city is fine, and Honda tells us it's the most popular small SUV in the private market. But rev it out and or drive on coarse bitumen country roads, and the noise is a bit too intrusive. Only available in two-wheel drive, the RS is $37,700 plus on-road costs. Vehicle product placement is a big thing in movies. It helps if the hero is driving your car. The next frontier for brands is space. The Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency and Toyota have named the large moon rover, which they are jointly developing, the Lunar Cruiser. With obvious reference to the Toyota Land Cruiser, they say the name reflects the quality and durability that is associated with their earthly vehicle. In order to achieve the travel demands of a future lunar surface-based society, the vehicle is enclosed and pressurised and is starting to look more like a recreational vehicle rather than the dune buggy appearance of the first lunar rover. It will be six-wheel drive and powered by a hydrogen fuel cell driving electric motors with a range, they hope, of 10,000 kilometres. An expected launch date is not till the latter half of the 2020s. And to keep you informed on vehicles you might consider buying, Rolls-Royce has announced the latest update of its Ghost model. They say it is built for the post-opulence age and is completely redesigned and re-engineered. The Spirit of Ecstasy emblem and the umbrellas stored inside the car are the only items they have not changed. The first Ghost was introduced 10 years ago and has since become the most successful model in the company's 116-year history. The model aims to be a slightly smaller, less ostentatious way to own a Rolls-Royce. The Ghost models tend to be driven more by the owner rather than a chauffeur. It is powered by a 6.75-litre twin-turbocharged V12, delivering 420 kilowatts and 850 newton-metres of torque, operating through an 8-speed satellite-aided automatic transmission. It has all-wheel steer and all-wheel drive. We won't see them here till at least next year. And that has been the news. Volkswagen has joined the compact urban SUV segment with the unusually named T-Cross, a front-wheel drive only SUV. It arrives in two versions, the Life for just under $28,000 and the Style for just under $31,000 plus the usual costs. It's powered by Volkswagen's feisty 1-litre, three-cylinder turbo petrol engine, puts out 85 kilowatts and 200 newton metres, drives the front wheels through a seven-speed DSG transmission. The T-Cross is really quite stylish and attracted a lot of attention when I drove it. People really liked it. And in the further quest for individualisation, you can specify several value-driven option packages, including a driver assistance package for the Life model, 
a sound and vision package which includes a Beats sound system and digital cockpit for either model grade and an R-Line package for the style grade. It seems that many car brands now offer a variation of this three-cylinder turbo petrol engine for their urban SUVs, and the T-Cross is definitely worth a test drive. You're listening to Overdrive. It's feedback time, where we report on a few comments and reflections from our Facebook site, Overdrive City, and our webpage, drivenmedia.com.au. Sean Connery has just celebrated his 90th birthday. His first car in Dr. No was a Sunbeam Alpine Series 2. His most memorable was the Aston Martin DB5. If he was still doing James Bond movies, I wonder what car he would be driving now. I might have once said a Toyota Camry, but they are no longer the car for just going to the bowling club in. An electric car would have incredible acceleration, so he might opt for the more sedate sedan hybrid. Errol thinks Connery would still want to live in the past but without the dangers. He suggests, quote, it would still be a DB5, but the replica one Aston Martin recently made for 25 very wealthy DB5 fans with the fake machine guns and no functional ejector seat, just so he can't get into too much trouble if he has a senior's moment behind the wheel, unquote. Colin has a more practical suggestion, a mobility scooter. Although Dean and I know a 98-year-old lady who drives a mobility scooter like it's a Formula One racer. Our mechanical engineer, Fred, noted that the proposed racing circuit to be built near Nelson's Bay in New South Wales has been slow to get off the ground and is now on hold. Don't hold your breath waiting for it. How would you cope with a young neighbourhood child riding his bike on your driveway in the early evening, resulting in an alert each time on your security camera? A man in America had this situation. He was originally annoyed, but decided to be more positive. He chalked out a circle for the young fellow to ride around, learning skills of control. Apparently even NASCAR drivers heard of this and are trying to contact the owner to send him stuff for the youngster. There's a URL to a video on this on our Facebook page, Overdrive City. And finally, we mentioned the anniversary of the Mini from 1959 last week and noted how Spike Milligan owned one. Well, Spike Milligan also made an ad for the car. Here's part of what he said. The Mini. Small engine. Easy maintenance. Safety. Four-wheel brakes. British made. Small on the outside, big on the inside. Don't just wave the flag, drive it! I did this commercial for nothing because I believe in this car. Freeze frame. Talking about the new Mini, a few weeks ago we interviewed Paul Morell about the car and how it broke down class barriers. The BBC produced a documentary on its 30th birthday that started with this very point. But the Mini hovered on the brink of disaster for its first two years. It wasn't until the then jet set, and indeed royalty, were seen driving Minis that the general public were prepared to accept them. Before the days of parking meters, the London trendsetters saw them as the answer to their parking problems, and suddenly it became a prestige symbol to be seen in a Mini. One of the royals that bought a Mini was Lord Snowden, who remembers sitting with the designer Alec Isigonis as he doodled with drawings at the lunch table. 
Lord Snowden had another interesting story about how Izzy Gonis had clear ideas about the car. I mean, the first ones, if you remember, had slide windows here. And uh, I had some wind-down windows put in and sent it back to Alec for something else. Came back with one wind-down window on my side and he put back the slide windows on the passenger side. I was furious. I said, why, Alec? And he said, very bad for the passenger's hair if it's a lady. Paul Morell loved the documentary, especially the guy mowing the lawn behind John Cooper, the esteemed racing car builder. It's in the interview at the 6 minute 25 second mark. You're listening to Overdrive. COVID-19 has highlighted our dependence on the freight industry for the moving of goods. For too long, transport planning has focused too much on just the movement of people. A balanced transport system understands and caters for both. The freight manufacturers are at the forefront of building better vehicles, not just for the benefit of owners, but for improved ways to work in the community environment. The developments that have and are being pursued will affect us all. Heavy Vehicle Australia, among many things, has run the largest truck show in Australia at Brisbane for many years, but of course that has had to change at the moment because of the pandemic. But the industry is still doing many things. The CEO of Heavy Vehicles Industry Australia is Todd Hacking, who joins us on the line now. Todd, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. Pleasure. How is the industry travelling just at the moment? Oh, look, you know, you're right. I think uh, it has been disruptive, but um, every every industry and uh, and and lots of businesses and and every everybody has had disruption in in 2020, and we've just tried to do the best we can. I mean, we've been very fortunate that we've been able to continue to trade, even though you know we've had to invest in lots of new processes and systems and. Uh, and just uh, keep ploughing away. So, um, yeah, we're, we're hanging in there, but it's been tough for everyone, and, and we're no different. There are many processes, isn't it? It's not just a case of a, a truck turning up at a depot. It's the whole logistics of that, and, in fact, that's an area where a lot of efficiencies are being pursued. Yeah, that's absolutely true, David. So um, there's a whole supply chain. You've got the repair and maintenance side of the, the industry, there's a lot of people in the industry, and I think that's one of the great things that uh, we don't often uh, hear is uh, in terms of Australian manufacturing, you know, 98% of all the heavy trailers that are on the road are, are made here in Australia, and a good proportion of the trucks are locally made. And even if a truck or trailer isn't locally made here, there's still, I think, uh, 99% of those chassis have to have some secondary uh, body uh, work done to it. So there is a huge manufacturing um, capability in Australia when it comes to heavy vehicles, and that's something that we're very proud of. Probably the best-kept secret in Australia, to be honest. While we may import parts and and assemble here, we are also heavily Australia in the design of trailers, I believe. It's not just putting together, it's actually engineering. We lead the world, uh, David, in trailer engineering and design and manufacture, and, and the reason for that is due to Australia's geography. If you go across to Europe and you travel 500 kilometres, you can be in three different countries. <laughs> in Australia, you, you drive 500 k's, you haven't even left Queensland yet. We do carry freight the longest distances in the world through some of the harshest terrain, and we've had to adapt 
and we've had to uh, really lead the world and world in that design and uh, of of engineering processes and the performance based uh, standard system, which is regulated by the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator, is world leading. Because of the pandemic, there has been opportunity then for the heavy industry, say, to deliver things at night. That's a fantastic from an efficiency point of view, but of course it has an impact on local areas. Does that help push development of things like hybrid or even electric vehicles? It does. Uh, obviously, the more trucks that we can get off the road during peak hour is uh, is not only good for, for trucking companies uh, in terms of productivity, but it's also good for the community in terms of, of safety, uh, of road safety. So as an industry and and we work closely with a lot of the operator. We don't necessarily represent them, but we work closely with them. And uh, yeah, I, I think one of the things that they are pushing for, and I think what you you may see moving forward, is a standing change in relation to curfews. That is just making the whole supply chain more efficient. But yeah, you're right. In terms of um, obviously, as as users of heavy vehicles, people don't want to disrupt uh, neighbours. You know, trucks are required everywhere and for, for every purpose and, and every industry. So it doesn't matter whether it's your waste man picking up your garbage bin or a housing development, uh, the pouring of a slab, for example. All of these uh, industries re- require heavy vehicles. And if we can do that you know, more efficient and, and safer and, and with better you know, noise attenuation, for example, then that's something that we, we are looking at and, and should be looking at and, and Lots of research and development goes into improving those standards um, as we go. There is a lot more data being collected, isn't there? The modern truck of today has far more connectivity back to head office of the, the freight handler. Is that producing a much better environment for drivers? Yeah, it is. Um, I always say when I, I go out to lots of schools and, uh, and give lots of presentations to kids and, and try and get them interested in the industry, because I think there's a there's a misnomer, there's a perception out there that it's still a bunch of old grease monkeys, you know, with a you know with a wrench and a spanner. And um, you know, I have to go out and, and basically correct that perception. I mean, most of these trucks are now big computers with wheels, and if you look at it from that point of view. The future is really exciting. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, one of the manufacturers told me recently that there's over 200 messages a second going from the cabin back into the cloud in terms of data, just from an OEM perspective. Yeah, telematics is really starting to, to pick up steam. I, I think I read a report recently that the growth rate is, is 15 or 20% uh, in, in New Zealand, and, and that would be mirrored here in Australia, I think. Because the margins are so tight, operators are looking for every advantage that they can get, and telematics can they can ping you the the best route possible, the most efficient route possible. They can improve your maintenance costs. They can uh, decrease fuel costs. Uh, they can boost your productivity. It also supports the the actual driver and and the communication back to head office. Yeah, but there's also a an element of compliance there as well. So a lot of these telematic systems now can tell head office if you're speeding or if you're overloaded or all that kind of stuff. And that's also been driven by chain of responsibility. You know, so you know the the operator 
is one thing, but the, the fleet manager also needs to have confidence that the truck driver's doing the right thing as well. So telematics is is moving along leaps and bounds, and um, I, I I think it's only going to get uh, more and more advanced as we as we move forward. So the solutions are that complexity and completeness of the environment. Todd, that has been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Anytime, mate. Pleasure. You're listening to Overdrive. There's an American company that is restoring old Rolls-Royce Phantom 5s with a few modern features, including replacing the engine with an electric motor. Now, before commenting on that, we should reflect on the history of this quintessential British luxury vehicle built between 1959 and 1968. Brian Crump is the president of the Rolls-Royce Club of Australia, and he joins us on the line. Brian, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. We colonials, we still venerate in many ways the greatness of Rolls-Royce. Can you tell me about the Sir Henry Royce Foundation? Well, the Sir Henry Royce Foundation is a charitable trust which has been set up to preserve for future generations the engineering excellence of Sir Henry Royce. It has a very comprehensive archive in Melbourne at Bill Allsap House where we keep a lot of the records of the earlier cars and literature that goes with them. We have got the Lionel Gell School of Instruction, which is also in Melbourne, and that aims to instruct people on how the Rolls-Royces are constructed and how they can preserve and maintain them. In Queensland at Gbung, we have another museum, which is currently gathering various artefacts and paraphernalia associated with the earlier days of Royce in Australia and the Rolls-Royce motor car and Bentley, of course. And then we have a quite comprehensive display room of Rolls-Royce and Bentley cars so that people can go and see them in a fine condition. And in New South Wales, we have one of Her Majesty's ex-cars, which was an Australian Commonwealth car, uh, that's the 1967 Rolls-Royce Phantom 5. So, David, when you talk about electrification, it's interesting because Henry Royce began as an electrician. And I suspect that if he were alive today, it would be electric cars that he's producing. You actually have the Sir Henry Royce Foundation. Yes. It's a focus on the person who was the self-made engineer, the one who pursued perfection of design and construction, not Rolls, who was the marketing guy. It's that passion for what was built, not just the image? That's correct. It's the passion for the engineering and the application of the best possible methods. And as we know, Sir Henry himself, was never satisfied until something was as perfect as a human could make it. And it's that dedication and passion to perfection that we try to keep alive and look after or curate for future generations. It's a great commitment, not just in terms of pretension, but in, in practicality in doing this. Now, you mentioned that great Rolls-Royce we had, a chassis number 5VF159, I believe, ordered by the Australian Federal Government, used for the Governor-General, royalty, heads of state. In fact, the colonial model, I believe. There were a few adjustments to suit 
our particular environment? Well, it's got two sets of adjustments. It's got the colonial adjustment for Australia. So it's a 6.2 litre engine with a compression ratio of 8.1, 8 as to 1 for slow work. It's got a rear axle diff which will allow it to travel at four miles an hour very comfortably because of that, of course, is parade speed. It was ordered by the government, so it comes equipped with the police lights, the flagpoles, the cocktail cabinet, intercom system, glass interior petition, but it was also built to Her Majesty's specifications in that she chose the colour of the rear compartment leather and she insisted that it have pale pink silk blinds. How many members does the Rolls-Royce Club of Australia have? We've got a little bit over 400 in New South Wales, of which I'm the, the president, and spread around Australia, we've got about a 1,000 members. You own one yourself? I do. I've got a um, 1933 Phantom II Continental and a 1993 Silver Spirit II. Coping with an old Phantom V getting an electric engine, they've had uh, some challenges to traditions in the past. I think John Lennon had one that was painted in psychedelic colours. Liberace had one which was painted in a manner that one could only say was over the top, as it did Elton John had a pink one. So I guess there have been some people who have flown in the face of some of the traditional aspects to it. Does that make the Rolls-Royce owner resilient to some of these different approaches? I think the attitude of Rolls-Royce as a car company from the very beginning and still continuing today is if a customer says, I want something, then that's what the customer gets. So you could always order basically whatever you wanted because Rolls-Royce is un through until the World War II period, were largely coach-built. Coach-building did continue after World War II, but then, of course, as you know, it began to tail off. Today, coach-building is is coming back in with Rolls-Royce. So the variation or whatever you want is almost, has always been almost endless, and it still is endless. So it's not unusual for someone to want something that is a little idiosyncratic. I would argue that most Rolls-Royce owners are a little bit idiosyncratic. I I might get into trouble for that, but I think the consensus would be that they're individuals and therefore they want an individual car. But, I mean, look, you you find in many Rolls-Royces the cocktail cabinet in the rear compartment. There was the, the wonderful countryman version done during the 1950s where your footstool, your seating stool and your picnic table all folded out of the boot. You could get them with a plug-in electric kettle or coffee maker. All sorts of what we might consider idiosyncrasies were actually seen as creature comforts. And if the customer wanted them, they were available. Brian Crump, President of the Rolls-Royce Club of Australia in New South Wales, the branch. I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you very much. David, it's been a pleasure. You take care. That was Brian Crump, who is an owner of Rolls-Royce. It sounds like some very lovely old Rolls-Royces, but also has a wonderful feeling, passion, and I think a balanced view for Rolls-Royces. You're listening to Overdrive. 
Skoda is not a well-known brand in Australia, but it produces good cars as part of the Volkswagen stable. One of their more interesting cars is the Kodiak RS, a seven-seat sport all-wheel drive SUV that has some really clever design features. It's the first Skoda SUV to bear the RS name, and it's powered by a potent 176 kilowatt, 500 newton meter, two-litre bi-turbo diesel engine. Runs from 0 to 100 in about seven seconds. Key highlights of the sporty model are unique 20-inch alloy wheels and red brake calipers, blacked-out mirrors, roof rails and grille with the RS badging, a premium leather interior, again with the RS badging, and Skoda's high-definition digital cockpit. The clever features include a start button on the steering column, very intuitive, an umbrella dryer in the passenger door, fold-out door protectors when they open, auto-opening rear boot and boot storage with hidden cubby holes. Price from just under $66,000 plus the usual costs, it's actually really good value and enjoyable to drive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Crump, Todd Hacking and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.